The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Good evening, everyone. So on these Monday evenings that I've been here for the last six or seven weeks, I've given a series of talks on the seven factors of awakening. And uh, so today, tonight I'm going to talk about the last factor, which is uh, equ- equanimity. So it could easily be said to be the most important of them all, because they're uh, understood sometimes they're understood sometimes as something that develops sequentially, with uh, equanimity being the kind of the climax or the conclusion of these seven factors. Um, these seven factors of awakening, it, uh, I mentioned at the beginning of this series, that are kind of like the sap that runs through the tree of Buddhism. That there are many different uh, branches of Buddhism, different traditions, lineages, denominations, and that uh, uh, seven factors of awakening are the nourishment that kind of keeps it alive or keeps it flowing. And I like it this way because uh, the seven factors of awakening are not so much practices as states, states of being, st- ways of being, the kind of inner, uh, inner qualities that get awakened and strengthened and kind of are there, there as, you know, as as you might say, a state of peace settled into you, or a state of calm, or a state of, you're in a happy state, for you woke up in the morning, you don't know why, but you're just in a happy state. These are states. And states are more enduring than practices, they're more enduring than fleeting reactions to the world we have. States are also impermanent and changing, but uh, there's something inner, like an inner, I don't know if it makes sense to call them inner, inner radiance, but an inner kind of, I, like, I think of them as strengths that kind of we develop and grow with practice. And with that, they nourish us, they support us. In fact, um, uh, there's stories in the ancient uh, texts of people using the seven factors of, wake, of awakening for healing. Um, there was once that the Buddha was sick and one of his senior disciples came to see him and then uh, reminded him or told him or evoked or did a guided meditation or something on the seven factors of awakening and uh, the Buddha got well. And then later, uh, the disciple got sick and the Buddha returned the favor, <laughs> came and offered the <coughs> And I did it once when uh, we had a Sangha member here who was in the hospital at Stanford quite sick and because she was a uh, quite an experienced meditator, a lot of depth in her meditation, uh, very very committed, very a lot of uh, confidence in meditation practice. When I came to her bedside, I did a guided meditation for her on the seven factors of awakening. Um, I don't really know. I don't think I healed her <laughs> at all. If, you know, if anything, it was just meaningful for her in that, those minutes to be reminded about something that was very close to her. You know, something she was familiar with, she experiences these states at the times very strongly. And so to be reminded of this is, you know, is a lot better than some of the alternatives in the hospital. Um, But I believe that uh, these states can be quite healing. 
because uh, at least they feel that way. I've had that in me, where when the when the concentration and these different states are operating, and they're kind of there as kind of states, as emotional qualities or something like that, that um, uh, it kind of literally feels as if there's healing energy that's kind of moving through, move, move, moving through me and through my pores or my veins or something. And it's quite an amazing, amazing thing to feel. Um, that doesn't mean I know for sure that they're healing or, you know, or that, that whatever I was experiencing was healing. I don't know, you know. Um, but that's, that's really how it felt. So these, these seven factors of awakening are like the sap. This thing is flows through us. And, and because it flows through people, it's what animates uh, Buddhism. Buddhism is about people. Uh, it's not about books. It's not about doctrines. It's not about, you know, lists <laughs> in themselves, like the seven factors of awakening. <laughs> but, but rather they are, um, you know, what animate us from the inside, what kind of brings certain aliveness and and ultimately freedom to us. And so this idea of awakening is a big word in Buddhism that's used almost synonymous with freedom, with a liberation, emancipation. It's a big deal. And so this is the reference point for the growth of Buddhism and supports it and it allows this tradition to do, grow and develop in different ways. And equanimity, and that was a seventh factor of awakening. And um, uh, some people... Uh, have kind of a negative reaction to hear that equanimity is important in Buddhism. And it's reasonable to have a little bit negative reaction. So if you already have that, it's okay. It's, it's reason, you're, reason, you're being reasonable. And some of the reasonable re- reasons people react kind of negatively to it is that uh, Buddhism can give the impression that you're supposed to always be cool. You're supposed to be kind of like always be calm and you're supposed to not react or have any strong passions or excitement about things. and and after all, you know, you're supposed to let go all the time if you're Buddhist. Just let go. And, um, you know, and it's, it's, your life would be better if you let go. Um, and, uh, and so it just kind of sounds kind of like a lot of renunciation, a lot of kind of not life, you know. How much life do you find in letting go? And, uh, and so equanimity can just seem like kind of dampening down and just kind of... And there are people who have gotten the message that, you know, you're too excitable, you're too much this, you're too much that, just kind of chill. And sometimes that's done as a kind of, it's, it's kind of violent to do some people because it's who they are to be excited and animated and, and then be told they can't be that way. Uh, you know, it's a kind of, it's painful and they're worse. So there's maybe, maybe those some of the reasons why the topic of equanimity is a little bit off-putting for some people. Um, however, uh, equanimity is not a form of weakness, not a form of dampening down. It, uh, when it becomes well-developed, it's a strength. And it, uh, you know, we become strong. And actually, all, all, all seven factors of awakening are, as they grow within us, are kind of strengths that we carry with us as we go about our lives. And um, as you probably know, and there are many situations where you're really strong in something, you are then <clears throat> less uh, uh, challenged by situation you, you're in. So if you're strong in, um, you know, if maybe you've learned to ride a bike, maybe you remember what it was like to run a, uh, ride a bike. And um, I've taught, I don't remember when I learned to ride a bike, but I, me- I remember teaching my kids riding to bike. 
And they were f- afraid and uncertain and unwilling. And it was a big deal, you know, like, oh, no, I can't do it. And they were not equanimous. And then it was like cl- crashing into the mailbox. And, you know, and that t- created a certain more angst. And, and it was a big deal. But then finally they managed to ride the bike. And they were really excited. And it was like a real high for them. It was nice. Um, but eventually they became pretty good at it. And as they became good at it, they were equanimous about riding a bike. Riding a bike was nice to do, they enjoyed it maybe, but it was, um, you know, they, they didn't, weren't worried by, by that. So certain confidence and strength in something we do leads us to be more kind of balanced, at ease with it. It's not a big deal, we can do it in a nice way. Or if we go to the gym, maybe if you can work out and get all buff and strong, <laughs> you may not get strong in some way, um, there's something about the, the vitality of be, kind of being physically strong which translates to being emotionally balanced, not, to, not so easily pushed around or swayed by what goes around us. So that, you know, but if you're sick and weak, if you've been that way sometimes, then we feel more tentative and fragile. And so people say things, things happen, it's like, oh, yeah, this is too much. But physical strength sometimes can make a bit of difference. So same thing with emotional strength or psychic, psychological strength, the more we have of some kind of inner psychological strength, um, uh, you know, the more we feel like we're resilient, the more we feel like we can hold our own in different situations. And there are um, uh, a teaching in Buddhism that uh, maybe points to the value of this kind of equanimity. And this is called, uh, it's called the teaching of the four winds, the four winds of the world. And these are the common winds that blow through our social world, which uh, pushes people around. They sway people. People get caught in them and reactive to them and come under their influence. And these uh, 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 four winds, they're pairs of things. It's praise and blame, success and failure, pain and pleasure, and fame and ill repute. So, praise and blame. How are you when you get praised? I mean, praise is good, it can be fine, especially if it's deserved. Um, And it's fine to enjoy certain kind of appreciation that people give you. But as many of you know, praise and blame can really be a hook for people. And, uh, And some people get used to being praised and they get high and energized by it and certain vitality. And the opposite is horrible, right, to be blamed. And, um, and uh, so we get caught up and, you know, we don't want to be blamed, we take it personally, we want to defend ourselves, we want to attack, we want to do all this stuff. Sometimes it's appropriate to, you know, counter blame, that's not justified. But uh, to get contracted, to get anxious, to get upset, to get angry, uh, we, then we're, the winds of praise and blame are pushing us around. And to be able to walk into a situation of praise and blame and not be swayed, to stay imperturbable, to stay balanced, to stay unruffled, is part of what this equanimity is. So the same thing with success and failure. Some people get crushed by failure in whatever they're doing, and some people get excessively elated by success. And we get pushed around by it. And so that also is a, can be a setup for a lot of suffering. So to be able to engage in activities, whatever we do, 
uh, energetically and fully, and not be crushed by failure, not be, uh, you know, uh, get conceited by success, but to stay balanced, to be equanimous. And then pain and, and pleasure. Some people uh, don't see any value in equ- equanimity around pain and pleasure, but it's a beautiful thing to be able to go through a um, certain degree of pain and pleasure and, and not get swayed by it, not get ex- excited or contracted or kind of lost in it. And we have a society of people who get lost in the pursuit of pleasure in a variety of ways or are, chase, are, are running away from discomfort and pain at all costs. And so to learn to have equanimity about um, pain and pleasure is a beautiful thing. There's a story of um, Mullah Nasruddin, this uh, famous, wise Sufi master who um, would stay home every day and have a meal of beans and rice or something. Just every day, beans and rice, beans and rice. And, um, but his neighbor, who was somewhat well-to-do, and uh, attended to the king and got wealthy. And he came to, um, to Mullah one day and said, Look, Mullah, uh, all you have to do is go visit the king from time to time and kind of kiss up to the king. And uh, you too can get wealth and be able to eat good, f- good food. And Mullah turned to uh, his neighbor and said, uh, All you have to do is to learn to appreciate rice and beans. <laughs> and you, you won't have to kiss up to the king. <laughs> So, you know, finding some, you know, capacity of equanimity or balance or, you know, simple things, not be caught up in pleasure and pain. And then the last one, last wind, is uh, fame and disrepute. And uh, probably many of you know how often fame uh, really messes people uh, psychologically in big ways and the tremendous amount of suffering that comes with people who get kind of addicted to fame and needing it, concerned with it. And then there are people who also get caught up and crushed by uh, disrepute, ill repute. In some ways, this was pendulum can swing so easily with fame. It often goes the other direction. So how to go through life with these things? Sometimes you can't avoid some of these things, but uh, how to stay balanced, unperturbed, not to lose your peace or your well-being. That's part of the function of equanimity, to be able to have that in circumstances. One of the words that's used in Buddhism for this equanimity is imperturbability. And it doesn't mean that you're unfeeling. It means that um, the mind doesn't uh, um, constrict. The mind doesn't get agitated by what goes on. There might be energy, there might be you know, even some passion and some really enthusiasm for things, but um, uh, it doesn't mean that we get agitated. The mind can stay peaceful. To get also get a sense of how equanimity is really a great thing, why Buddhists might champion it so much, is that uh, in this um, in these seven factors of awakening, it's it's the it's the final one. So to go through them, mindfulness is a state of strong awareness of the present moment. Really, a kind of strong sense of presence here. Investigation is a strong sense of clarity about what you see here. Really kind of see clearly, distinguish clearly what is it that's going on in this moment. 
not kind of in the present moment vaguely, just oh here, it's all kind of nice, but really kind of be clear and here, present, and be clear. And this is a great thing, to be present and clear what's happening. Um, energy is, uh, the third factor, is to be engaged wholeheartedly in what you're doing. There's kind of wholeheartedness in the activity. Uh, and then there's uh, uh, joy. So the joy is a great thing. Buddhism emphasizes tremendously uh, factors like joy and delight and happiness as being very important uh, food and nourishment for us in the practice. So developing strong states of joys is one of the functions of meditation. And then tranquility, um, or deep states of serenity and peace. And then um, uh, concentration, strong states of mental stability, focus, steadiness, um, sense of unification, feeling kind of whole, present. These are strong states that develop, and the beautiful states. And for right now, I just want to highlight the joy thing. And it's on the basis of those things be becoming strong that equanimity arises. So equanimity arises on top of these other strengths, these other presence that are there. And so it becomes the kind of the culmination. And it's very, it's very sublime. It's an extremely satisfying state to be in. It's actually much more satisfying and enjoyable than the state of joy or tranquility and such things. Because a certain kind of purity of mind or a certain kind of healthiness of mind which doesn't get ruffled by things. And so the mind stays clear and present and open and available. And, you know, it goes through life without kind of getting contracted. So, for example, um, if, um, I don't know what's a good example, you go into a social gathering and you're basically calm and feeling good and you go into a social gather, gathering and you're wearing the wrong clothes. Or, you know, or people are ignoring you. Or people say, you know, all kinds of political strange things that, you know, you know, like, all kinds of things, all kinds of things can go on, right? And so a lot of stuff goes on in the mind in these kinds of social gatherings. There's concern about how people see us, concern about do we say the right thing, how do we fit in? Um, we have our opinions and views ourselves about things, about politics and all kinds of things. And it's very easy to watch the mind get contracted or tight or forceful or compulsive to feel kind of, kind of uncomfortable in the situation or forceful or something. It's another thing to go into the social gathering and have equanimity where, the, where you're present and available, but there's no clinging in the mind. There's no attachment to anything. There's no need to make something happen. But there's a lot of presence, attention, knowledge, understanding of what's there. But the mind doesn't get agitated by it. So to walk into some situation uh, that might be challenging and not get agitated. And one of the prime ways that equanimity uh, gets cultivated, gets, uh, appears, is beginning to appreciate that it's, a ni it's really nice not to cling. And a part of this whole process of the seven factors of awakening helps support us to understand, first of all, what clinging is, what grasping or, or mental attachment is, you know, kind of neurotic attachment. 
it's not so obvious to, to have a visceral, intimate, felt sense connection to what it feels like for the mind to cling, to really want something. And this visceral, immediate, felt sense experience of it is so important because if you just read a book, it says don't cling, you know, what does that mean? What do you do, what do, you do then? But to know how you do it, to see, you know, your, your hand clasps. If you read a book, never clasp your hand, it's going to hurt. You, know, you never clasp your hand, what do, they, what do they mean by that? But if you really feel it, then you know something. And so after a while you get a sense of what this clinging or grasping or contraction of the mind is like. And you start having a sense of the mind not grasping, not clasping. And get a sense, a feel for that, what that's like. A visceral feeling for the mind that doesn't cling. Forget about the policy that you shouldn't cling. Forget about the, the idea, you know, like Buddhists are not supposed to get attached. It's not a good policy because, um, you know, in and of itself, policies aren't so useful. Occasionally they help, they're helpful, but, um, but what we're trying to do here is to have our own visceral direct experience of what it's like to cling and more importantly, what it's like to not cling. What it's like, what it's like the mind to get contracted or tight. What it's like to the focus to get narrow and agitated. Um, you know, all these kinds of unhealthy or painful ways that the mind, the heart, can get kind of wrapped up and caught up in things. Afraid and wanting and hating and confused and all these things. To get a real visceral, immediate sense of what this is like to not have this presence. And once you have it, once you have this experience of the mind not clinging, then you have the opportunity to let the investigation go into why am I clinging? Is it worthwhile to cling? Do I need to cling? Is clinging the best option in this situation? Do I really want to cling? Am I better off by contracting or getting agitated? Or why do I want to let go? Why do I want to lose? this nice state that I'm in for a state which is not so nice? Why sacrifice something which is pleasant for something which is unpleasant? And so these kinds of questions become relevant when the practice brings us to a place where we can feel the difference between clinging and not clinging. And not only can we feel the difference of it, but even more importantly, we begin to see the mechanism about what it's like to to grasp and what it's like to let go. And that's also not so easy to see the inner mechanism of the mind, how it works, to see the movement of picking something up and getting caught in it, and then knowing what it's like to relax, settle back, and loosen up in the mind or the heart when we're doing. And so to get your own personal experience of that gives you the opportunity more and more to begin choosing and questioning what you want to be doing. What serves you the best? And it comes a point where you're able to get better and better, you're able to go into a situation and you see the mind wanting to cling or starts to cling and you say, you know, why? Why do this? I know something else. Why why, why don't I try to let go and relax? Some people have learned that letting go and relaxing the clinging, um, they learn to trust it when they see that a non-clinging mind is a wiser mind and is able to take care of your life much better. It's actually safer because you have more wisdom and more clarity of what's going on. Some people, that's finally, they learn that lesson, they're more willing to let go. So one of the great wisdom questions to carry around with you 
is when you start getting a sense of the difference between a mind that clings and a mind that doesn't cling, is, um, is for what purpose do you sacrifice your ease? For what reasons do you sacrifice your own inner well-being? So if you have some inner well-being, you go about, you're going about your life, and for some reason you've settled, you're calm, you're relaxed, maybe you meditated, and then you, um, and you leave, and then ask you, for, for what purpose is it useful to give that up? And for what do you give it up for? So I'll give you a simple example from when my kids were young. This was back in the ancient world when we used to have a newspaper delivered to our house. <laughs> and I used to like reading the newspaper in the morning. You know, I kind of knew that. I usually didn't remember what I read after a few weeks. But still, I liked reading it. It's kind of a comforting ritual or something in the morning. And that was, you know, that, but, then I had, but then I had kids. And then I had kids who had to go to school. And I don't know what it was like for you, some of your kids if you had them take them to school when they're really young, but it was a heroic effort. (laughs) Uh, You know, to to get them dressed, get them fed, get them whatever they needed to do and get them out the door and and even getting from the door to the car, you know. (laughs) Because all the interesting things to see along the way and and they don't have no sense of time and they have to get anywhere on time. And and so I used to be um, sometimes exhausted by the time that I got the kids to school. I was ready to go back to bed because it was, you know, such a big thing. But then I know, one day I noticed something interesting. I noticed that um, taking the kids to school, getting them ready for school and all that, that um, I was always kind of rushing near the end. The kids weren't rushing. That was part of the problem. <laughs> they were just in the present moment. <laughs> and that was a problem. <laughs> and so I was, you know, rushing and trying to make it all work. And, um, and at some point it dawned on me, you know, if I had more time in the morning, I could prepare the breakfast, get the lunches ready, and kind of do things, you know, with, you know, get the things ready ahead of time. And then I looked at, then I considered reading the newspaper. Mm-hmm. And I said, you know, if I just stopped reading the newspaper in the morning, I'd have, have more time, and this getting my kids ready for school would, would be easier for me, and I wouldn't be so stressed around it. So, in fact, I stopped reading the newspaper and it became a lot easier. So, was it worth reading the newspaper? Reading the newspaper was kind of a cause or condition for me to lose my ease. So, was I willing to lose my ease for the sake of the newspaper? And I decided at some point, no. So, that's kind of the evaluation I'm talking about. There's, you know, one way. Or you find yourself getting agitated in a social situation and you realize that what you're concerned about is what people are thinking about you. Is it worth sacrificing your ease for what other people think about you? And I would suggest that more often than not, it's not worthwhile. You're better off, your ease is a better resource than what people think about you. So let them think what they want. And uh, don't contract, don't get clinging. So it's a powerful thing. So non-clinging, when you get a sense of it, is conducive to equanimity. And equanimity is conducive to supporting this movement of not clinging, not losing our, not sacrificing our well-being by clinging or reacting or resisting or something. 
So equanimity comes from strength. It can come from the strength of practice, of developing these other factors of awakening. It comes from confidence. If you have confidence in the practice, confidence in mindfulness, confidence in your ability to meet the situation with mindfulness. Equanimity comes from wisdom, from understanding. You begin understanding what's going on here. And the more wisdom and understanding we have in situations, often the more or less we're caught and reactive to it. If um, it's one thing someone comes in to work and, uh, and they're kind of a little bit, you know, short with you and maybe even a little mean with you and they kind of snap at you a little bit and, and it's just like, what's going on here? You feel bad and you feel angry and how could they be so disrespectful of you and what kind of place is this, this workplace? And, but then, you know, a few minutes later, someone else walks in and says, that, says oh, you know, um, you know that person, you know, there's some huge tragedy in their life. You know, their kid just died, or I don't know, just got diagnosed with horrible illness. And, and they're like, and it's, oh, now you understand something about, you know, what's behind their meanness. They're really hurting, they're struggling. They don't have much patience for anything because of how difficult things are. So with that understanding, you're more willing to offer equanimity, more willing to offer, you know, not be so reactive and cut up or take it so personally. If it was true because his kid is dying, that you didn't take it personally, do you have to have a reason for not taking it personally? (laughs) Do you have to have a reason like that not to get agitated personally around it? You have the ability not to get agitated. Why don't you just, just like... Okay, maybe, maybe the person has good reasons to be mean with you. <laughs> Whatever, you know, just, or maybe there's no, you know, who knows. But do you sacrifice your inner well-being? Do you sacrifice your calm? Do you sacrifice your ease because someone was mean to you? Or could you stay and look? The, you know, then I guess in, uh, there's one teaching that's in, I guess in Christianity that says, you know, you just, uh, if someone, hit, you know, hits you, you know, turn the other cheek, I guess, let them hit, so they hit the other cheek. In Buddhism, uh, if someone, hit, someone hits you or does something with you, um, look them in the eye. So, you know, kind of hold your ground, just look them in the eye. Have the equanimity, the strength, the ability. To, you don't give in to it again, you don't run away, but you have the stability and presence and openness to stay there and be present and look them in the eye or, or, or the equivalent of it. This comes with, that a capacity comes from equanimity. A mind that doesn't get contracted or caught or agitated by circumstances we're in. An unagitated mind, an uncontracted mind, is satisfying because of the peace and the spaciousness and the expansivity and the ease and the, and the, and the, creativity that can flow in that kind of open mind. It's a beautiful thing. Ultimately, the function of equanimity in Buddhism is to create enough calm, enough subtleness, enough ease, enough non-agitation in what is, that uh, the mind is poised for the experience of enlightenment, for awakening. And the experience of awakening is an experience of of such complete balance in the mind that um, that everything kind of lines up in such a balanced, harmonious, 
peaceful, still way, that um, the deepest attachments we have can fall away. There's a confidence or a trust or an ease or a non-reactivity that some of our deepest, deepest attachments can just vanish. And uh, it's a phenomenal thing to have the attachment to self, the attachment to anything at all disappear and have a mind, have a heart which is completely liberated from its attachment and the suffering that comes with it. And these seven factors of awakening are one of the, some of the preeminent uh, supports for this process of awakening. How do they, how do we, how does an individual develop them over time? How do they work? They come and they go. Uh, I think that uh, generally over a long career of practice like meditation practice, mindfulness practice, Buddhist practice, the idea is that slowly they begin to grow. And so it's like your baseline for joy, for happiness, for concentration, for tranquility, for equanimity. Uh, Slowly your baseline grows. That means you kind of have swings up and down past that baseline, but it becomes, you know, stronger and stronger over time. And you can identify that over time. You're happier more often. You're concentrated more often. You're calm more often. Um, but also the other place where it happens is um, on meditation retreats. And I think the place where they develop the most strongly is when people can do retreats where there's an ability to really devote one's time to meditation practice, to really engage in this kind of inner work for a long extended period of time where these things can develop uh, in, an un- in an uninterrupted way and there's a momentum that gets built. That gets built. And these seven factors not only work sequentially, but also work uh, mutually together as kind of like a system that uh, support each other. And so as they grow and they build, and so the highest reaches of these seven factors of awakening generally are something that people experience uh, on retreats. <coughs> Probably not the first few retreats that you go on, but as this whole meditation um, <clears throat> becomes more and more, uh, we become more and more skilled at it, more understanding how it works. And then this is the meditation retreats is kind of the place where these gets uh, concentrated or fulfilled or they blossom the most. It's like, you know, like the ideal greenhouse for uh, the plant, the tree of Buddhism in your heart to really grow and flourish. So uh, I hope that these talks and the seven factors of awakening have somehow pointed to you to, or evoked in you, or reminded you of particular states of being that uh, you might experience as you go about your day. <clears throat> and that as you go about them, to recognize them in yourself and then appreciate that these are important and valuable states. That there's uh, that uh, strong states of presence, of clarity, of wholeheartedness in what you do, of joy, of calm, of mental stability and equanimity, they might kind of waft through in unexpected ways and times. And when they're there, appreciate them, learn from them, understand them. And in particular, use the the foundation, use the experience of these kind of positive states to help you better understand 
how you lose them. How you lose them. Because you will. And, uh, but what happens to you? What, what do you pick up? What do you get involved in? What, you're calm, but then you're not. What happened there? Not to beat yourself up, not to feel bad about it, but so you can get wise and understand yourself better and better. Because it's the understanding how your inner operating system works that will support you and help you to maintain these states longer and longer and, uh, and, it, and help you support you to live a more liberated, free life. So, we have about five minutes before the end. If any of you have any questions or comments about this, you're welcome to ask. Um, could you address, Gil, a little bit the, the state of mind of mourning? Most states of mind, I can see, I can see the transparency of most states of mind, <clears throat> but I have real trouble with that one. Mourning the loss. Yeah, I think it's a completely natural uh, state to grieve, to mourn, when something important for us has been lost. And uh, what we try to do in mindfulness practice, if we use mindfulness practice, is not to try to overcome it, get rid of it, or stop it, but rather to offer it respectful presence, to give it its time and, and t- time and its due. And as we do that, as we make space for it and allow it, then sometimes what we can notice is that the, the mourning, the grief, um, is complicated by other factors besides pure grief. There might be fear. Oh no, now, you know, who's going to take care of me? And part of it is that fear that comes into place. Or there might be um, um, uh, particular things we were attached to. And I'll never get to do that again. But it had, there's attachment involved in it. Rather, and that, you know, that feeling, that pain of detachment torn away is more, it's not quite grief. So there's a variety of kind, of kind of things along the edges of grief that make the grief more complicated. And so by giving respectful presence to what we're experiencing as mourning, open to it, allow for it, get support from other people. Uh, don't feel bad about having it. Don't be embarrassed. Don't feel it's wrong. But just but make space for it. But then be, gently be mindful and see what's going on over time. And see what you can let go of that's extra. And, the, and, and so this brief can be purer and simpler. And chances are, if you do that, the natural... Um, Grief is always a process. It's hard to believe that in the middle of it when the grief is really strong. But there's a, uh, it's, there's a, the heart knows what to do with grief. So if you really can allow the heart its space and its due with the grief in a very simple, open way, without adding to it or contracting around it or anything, um, uh, it's a process that will lead to something uh, uh, appropriate, healthy in the long run. Does that make sense, or is that appropriate as a response? It is appropriate. Yes, definitely. Yeah. So what we're looking the time, for... The time factor, however, is... Yeah, the time factor is, 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 your, is, your, is your time, not other people's time. And it's one of the great disservices people do to people who are mourning is to say, you should be over it by now. 
you know, it's, you know, it's been, it's, you know, it's, <laughs> you know, it's, you know, it's been six months, you know, it's long enough. You know, what's wrong with you? Uh, it, there's no way of knowing how long grief should last. And every individual is different. Their, their, their conditions of their life are different. Their own way of grieving is different. And sometimes in certain ways, maybe it never ends, certain aspects of it. But it can get kind of simpler and simpler, or purer and purer. And we want to respect the time that it takes and respect our grief in the way it is. But I really want to underscore this value of kind of purifying the grief or simplifying the grief or freeing the grief from all the extra stuff that's added to it and, uh, and to uh, experience what um, Charlie Brown, I guess, was an expert at. G- good grief. <laughs> So thank you all and um, be well.